If you're an average player, you want to be left alone, right? Because you want to be able to slide by. If you're a good player, you want to be coached. If you're a great player, you want the coach to tell you the truth every day. Did I hustle on that play? Did I make the right read? Did I play the guy with the right leverage? You want to know every play. Because you know why? They want to be perfect. Everybody here makes a choice to do one of those three things. Welcome to the Goat Consulting Podcast, a podcast dedicated to people striving to be a goat, the greatest of all time, serving it up in a way that you can get it in all stages of life. Hey, I'm Colby Jubinville, and welcome to another episode of the Goat Consulting Podcast right here in studio in VC Productions in Nashville, Tennessee. we got a great show for you today. Tyler's not here. He's in the Sprinter. Bummer. He's on the road. He's hiring people. He's growing the GOAT family of brands. Uh, but we're excited about today. We are the GOAT Consulting Podcast. We serve it up in a way that you can get it to the left, as always, in studio with me. Made the big drive in from Brentwood. We call him the LinkedIn whisperer to our show. John, he has a last name, Byers. John, we're glad you're here. We're so here with good. us today. You've got a cool shirt that we'll talk about here in just a second. We're like Waffle House. We serve it up in a way that you can get it. In our 20s, they teach us to get in the game. In our 30s, they teach us to move up in the game. In our 40s, we try to stay in the game because those 30-year-olds are so damn good. In our 50s, what the research says is we finally ask ourselves, what is it that I really want? We are the GOAT Consulting Podcast. In sports, it's easy to see. It's people that are recognized for their greatness. They elevate the play of, of those around them. But in business, it's people that compete on unique perspective, unique education, and unique experience. What they do gives them energy. And it gives other people energy, creating new levels of challenge and new levels of opportunity. That sums it up for our good friend Jason Pfeiffer, who is in studio, not in studio, in Zoom at the table with us today. Close enough. John, you were responsible for putting this together. He is the chief of the Entrepreneur Magazine. He's a podcast host, got a new book out. We're excited for you to be here today, John. I'm going to turn it over to you, as Spencer would say, and let you take it from here. Yeah, and before we uh, we have Jason just dive in here, uh, as, as Colby mentioned, editor-in-chief for Entrepreneur Magazine, Startup Advisor, hosted the podcast with the same name as the book, Build for Tomorrow, which actually changed earlier this year. Maybe that's uh, was a part of your master plan and uh, known for and um, speaks to companies, Pfizer, Microsoft, DraftKings, Wix, about adapting to change. And I hear that's a thing in your world. So, Jason, it is a pleasure I, we, this moment for me has been building for months when we set this up earlier this year. It's true. To coordinate with your book, which I have, and I was a few weeks ago out of the country. I took this. I digested it along the way. I've got so much to talk about. We don't have enough time, and I'm just thrilled to have you. Thank you for being here. It's such a, oh, such a treat. Thank you for having me. What a powerful introduction that was. I, that was wonderful. So thank you. And yeah, uh, you, you've got a copy of the book, Build for Tomorrow, right in front of you. I'm, I'm honored to see it. I've got it. And I wanted to put you on the spot. I'm going to mail it to you in hopes that you will sign it and send it back to me. So that's now <laughs> out in the world. I won't require your answer here on air. Yeah, but, happy to do it. But and, it is out there. And not to put any pressure on, on you, Jason, but John has been calling me weekly since he set this up and said, are you prepared for the show? Are you prepared for the Pfeiffer show? Are you prepared for the show? And I said, yes, I think I'm prepared for the show. And then he was sat down today and he said, are you prepared for the show? So wow. no pressure. You seem um, prepared. You're here. You're ready. So let's do it. Let's make it happen. We appreciate we you go. taking the time today to be with us. Thank so you. I know you've probably done your research on us as much as we have on you. So thank you for that. You probably know, like I do, that you and I were born 10 days <laughs> apart. Yeah, I 
That is news to me. But well done for that research. I am July 18th, oh, God. 81. And he has a pl- client in White Plains. And I do. I was July 18th, 81. You were July 28th, 81. Am I right? Uh, close. July 28th, 80. Oh, well, so a, a you year know. and ten days. God. I blew it. We you were got, so close. He, close. he wants those things to happen. We had this moment with Darius Rucker once where he hurt our feelings, <laughs> but we won't talk about that right now. Well, Jason, so tell us, uh, you know, one of the ways that we honor our guests is we ask them to give us a defining moment before age 35, which was only a few years ago for you. We, we, find, <laughs> we find that many of our defining moments – Come before You're 35. You're only 10 days apart. Come on. <laughs> God. I was so close. You blew it. What is your defining moment before age 35? Oh, boy. Well, a defining moment for me was I, my first job out of college was a... I was at a Gardner. I was at a newspaper called the Gardner News. Gardner News, circulation six thousand, North Central Massachusetts, covering nothing, covering absolutely nothing. nothing happened. <laughs> Gardner News, and we got to start um, somewhere. Exactly, that's exactly right. And, I, but boy, I did not want to start somewhere. I wanted to start at the top, right? Because well, sure. that you know, that people, who has the patience to to climb? And so I, I was working at this job and I was about a year in and I was very, I was deeply frustrated uh, because I had these ambitions to write for, I didn't even know, just the biggest places I could find, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, something. And um, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting there. I was showing up every day at the Gardner News and clocking in. And um, eventually I realized two things, two really important things. Number one was that if I was better than this place, then I would be somewhere else, uh, which is to say I needed mm. to stop thinking about how I deserved to be somewhere else and start doing the work to actually get there. I think I was sour and I think I was making other people sour around me as a result. And then number two was that, you know what, if I want to go places, I cannot sit around and wait for them to come to me because they will not. Nobody at the New York Times was going to like see my stories about the middle school dance in the Gardner news and call me and like, be like, kid, great story. Bring it into the white house. Like, you know, you're covering the white house, you know, that's not happening. So, um, so I needed to go to them. uh, That's what I realized. I needed to go to them. And so I, I quit that job. And I was at the time living with some friends in a dumpy apartment in Holden, Massachusetts, next to a graveyard. How old were you in this moment, by the way? Oh, well, I guess I would have been 22 maybe. Okay. Yeah. And um, and I I started cold pitching. I just started cold pitching, you know, um, uh, just sending ideas out into the ether to editors that I'd never met. And um, and eventually I, I, I got some hits, uh, Boston Globe, Washington Post, Associated Press. And that's what started to build the career that I have now. And, I, and I've always remembered that. And as a result, I have never, ever in my entire career, aside from that that one moment, before that, uh, I've never just sat around thinking someone's going to come to me and recognize how good I am. I always work this job that I have, and then I would do a ton of things on the side yeah. because I want to make sure that I am being as proactive as possible and getting in front of people. I love what you said. Life. If I was better than this place, I would be somewhere else. Golly, yeah. it's so great. Well, was that the genesis moment for opportunity set A and opportunity set B? Nailed it. Yeah, sure is. Yeah. Um, should I explain that? Please. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, 
what I came to realize is that in front of everybody, there are two sets of opportunities. Opportunity set A, opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that's asked of you. So that is you show up at your job, you got a boss, your boss needs things from you. You got to do those things. You got to do them well. That's opportunity set A. You're going to be evaluated by that. Opportunity set B is everything that is available to you that nobody's asking you to do. Now, that could be at your job. You could join a new team take on new responsibilities, but it could also be outside your job. It could be that you love listening to this podcast and you think, well, these are just some guys in a room talking. I could probably do that. And then you go and start something Mm. and it might not be good. It might be very bad. I mean, let's be honest. The thing that you do, it might be very bad, but that doesn't matter because here's the thing. Opportunity set B always more important. Always, because if you only focus on opportunity set A, you're only going to be qualified to do the things you're already doing. But opportunity set B is where growth happens, and it's going to happen in unpredictable ways. So, like I said, you can start a podcast; it could be a very bad, bad, very bad podcast. But maybe by doing this podcast, you learn something about audio production, and then um, you know John. somebody comes along and. They see there you go. And you 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 some band, maybe maybe you got a friend with a band. And they're like, Hey, can you record us? You know how to do that, right? And you're like, I don't know, I guess so. And you do it and it goes pretty well. And band tells other people, and now you got other bands are contacting you, and then you're like, Oh, maybe I should go work at a studio. So then you get a job at a studio and you get more and more clients. And then you say, right, maybe I should start my own studio. And uh, now you got a whole different career and you got a great business, it's thriving, you got a lot of clients, and it all happened because you started a bad podcast. And this is what I'm talking about. Like we, we just always need to be putting ourselves in positions to grow and to learn Love it. and to arm ourselves with skills that are going to be useful in other ways and ways we can't even predict. Maybe, he, maybe he has done the research on us to go and start a bad podcast. That's um, how he knew you, you uh, did audio for Hanson. Yeah, I'm, I'm a recovering uh, opportunity set B, you know, I, my whole life I've been, I've been that mindset. Right. And yeah. I tried to get John for months earlier. Early on, he fought me on starting this podcast. He, mm, he said, did. "He said we can't do it. It doesn't work. It's too much time." I am totally oh, that's true. All but... about opportunity set B. Mm. In your experience, and I was raised to believe that, and raised that that was part of what you were supposed to do as a human being. In your yeah. experience, what percentage of the population do you think has that mindset? Because in my experience, I don't find a lot of people that can. I call it the the gear. I learned to find this gear playing college football. And once you learn how to use adversity to accelerate growth, then you find that opportunity he set me. I've never heard it that way, and I love that. Yep. But what percentage do you think is uh, people um, are conditioned to understand that there is an opportunity set B and then act on that? Oh, I mean, I don't know how to put a number to it, but I would say it's very low. Yeah. The, you know, the, I mean, I went through a massive transformation myself once I started spending all my time talking to entrepreneurs Yeah, because they have a radically different way of thinking than everybody else. And, um, you know, what, what I like to, uh, the way I like to think of it is, is it's the difference between horizontal and vertical thinking. So give you an example. This, this is how I realized this years ago. I, this is this book that we're talking about built for tomorrow. Um, this is my first book that is like, just has my name on it. But I years ago, uh, wrote a, a co-wrote a book with my wife and it was a romantic comedy it was a piece of fiction. And, um, and it was just, it was an idea that I had. My wife is a novelist. We decided to do it together. And we started long before I'd gotten to entrepreneur magazine, but books take a long time. So by the time it came out, I was at entrepreneur and had this really interesting experience where people, 
I had two sets of responses. So the friends of mine who were writers from the media community, they would say when they heard that we'd sold this book, they would say, congratulations, that's so exciting. But entrepreneurs said something else. And what they said was, uh, uh, that's interesting. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. How is it and, making money for you? How is it? Yeah. Well, opportunity? and it's not just, is it, how's it going to make money? It's, it's, it's this, I realized that what entrepreneurs were doing, the reason why they were asking that question is because entrepreneurs only do something if it is going to be the foundation upon which the next thing is built. Mm, that's yeah. what I think of as vertical thinking. You're building upwards. Whereas everybody else thinks horizontally. They think, I'll do this, and then I'll move along. Then I'll do this, then I'll move along. Then I'll do this, then I'll move along. And things don't build upon themselves. Interesting. And, you know, that is ultimately what Opportunity Set A and B is really all about. Is like, you know, Opportunity Set A is is about kind of moving horizontally through the world. But Opportunity Set B is about thinking, what can I do that other things are going to be built on top of? Even if I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm adding more blocks to my 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 toy chest so that i can start to stack and build and um and and the reason i think most people don't think like that to your question is just because they haven't been exposed that's right i agree with that Mm -hmm. yeah so let's let's reach back one but before we dive into the book and talk more about the foundation Mm -hmm. that that you have built and what you Mm -hmm. are building and how you do think vertically and i love that uh as a preface before we get where we're heading let's talk about one more of those blocks when you were a child what mm-hmm. would, what first comes to mind when you think of your favorite childhood memory? Oh boy. I I mean, I don't hmm. John's I, a, John's an armchair psychologist, by the yeah, way. Yeah, you are. I, I'm like trying to find something that's that's meaningful. I mean, when you say when you say childhood, I just start flashing to I grew up in South Florida. Okay. And um <sighs> Um, I was never into school, so my 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 fond memories are not school oriented. Um, you know, if they're if it's if I were talking older childhood, like high school, I was in bands. I really loved that because I loved creating. Yeah. It took me a long time to figure out what I was good at creating. I remember, I remember a friend of mine saw a, who you know like one of my closest friends. She can be very honest. Um, she saw my band play live, and afterwards, she was like, you know. I mean, like I've always told you, you're going to do great things. I don't think it's going to be music. <laughs> what did you play? What did, what did you play in the band? What was your role? Bass. I was a bass okay. guitarist. Of course, um, of course. And you know, but that's fine because honestly, I didn't feel I didn't feel like I was a natural at music. Writing is something that I knew I understood. You know, I I, I believe I believe that at heart, everybody's everybody has the same skill everybody has the same skill and here it is pattern matching yeah the difference is that we are i think naturally good at matching different patterns so i think that what i'm really good at like what is my skill really it is that in forms of communication i am really good at seeing good communication, good books, good articles, good podcasts, understanding the structure of them and knowing how to repeat it. That's what I do. Yeah. And um and other people are good at pattern matching in 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 other places. Other people are good at pattern matching in in business. You know, it's Numbers. so interesting. 
numbers, but but also the specific things like how you know I'm sure you guys have talked to many people who who discover that they're really really good at one area of business. Like the number of people I've talked to who are like, you know what I'm really good at? I'm really good at walking into a company that's in distress and figuring out how to get it out of distress. That's it. Mm, yeah. I don't know how to grow this company. I don't know how to start this company, but I'm really good at that one particular moment. That's pattern matching. Sure. And if you can identify what you're good at with pattern matching, then you you can really you can really really make use of yourself. It's probably worth a whole conversation on itself. Oh, I want to dive no into doubt. the book, Build for Tomorrow. I love this book. I love it. Thank you. <clears throat> to me, as I think about some of my favorite books that I've read, um, Think Again by Adam Grant, Atomic mm. Hab- Habits by James Clear. Like, I put this up in that level. So I want you to know that That's I'm a not, high just, compliment. I'm not just saying that. it. I feel like there's so many threads of commonalities in there. Did you want to add my book to that list or and, not? And, and, and Colby's books also. Thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to I wanna I'm transition a child, into so this. He needs, he needs lots of validation. <laughs> yes. I wore this shirt. I've kind of uh, accidentally become Tell us you know, about the shirt. wearing a unique shirt per episode in ways that we can honor, I guess. And I was really excited about this one because I'm a, I cycle, and this is uh, the evolution of the bike. Yeah. And it made me, as I saw this shirt, I knew, like, that's the shirt I'm going to wear when we chat with Jason. Because this is is such the body of your work, right? And I would like to think, as I've heard in many ways, whether it's in baseball or (laughs) cycling or whatever, it's so much more about the rider than it is the bike. But I will guarantee you that's not entirely true. And especially with me, I would not go very flat, far or fast on this guy versus the one of more recent years. Right. right. Well, so, right. so, so for, for listeners, you're pointing to the, the, the yes. very first bike, which I know, I mean, I know the history of the bike. Yes. So you're, you're pointing, you're pointing okay, to the very first one. People often call the, like the bone shaker, the bone, the bone shaker. rattler. Yep. Yeah. Um, because it was, nickname. thank you. <laughs> I mean, the very first version, I can't see on that shirt, but the very first version of the bike didn't even have pedals, right? It was more like a Strider bike. I think think you're right. Yeah, there are no pedals. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, it was incredibly, incredibly heavy uh, and had, you know, they hadn't figured out shocks yet. So you basically would kind of like run down the street and then like lift your legs on this thing. And then it would just like rumble and uh, it didn't make any sense to anybody. And then. Um, you know, they, they made it a little better with the, uh, they, they got some handles on, but still it would, it would fall, uh, easily and it would like crush you cause it was so heavy. Um, <laughs> right. So, so they figured out, they figured out how to make the, they figured out how to, how to kind of create a, a shock system, but the only way that they could make it work was to have a, a tiny wheel and a giant wheel, yeah. which is, which is what you see. Yeah, uh, that's that right. third bike on your, right. Yeah. So, um, uh, and I, I'm blanking on the name for that kind of bike right now, but, um, but you know, that was good, but uh, because it, because it enabled people to ride down the street without, uh, let's just call it a mongoose. We'll just, yeah, it, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it, it has, it starts with a P anyway, whatever. So, um, but the problem of course, is that that means that you have to like get really high up on this incredibly tall bike. And if you fall, you are in serious danger. Mm. So then finally the thing that, that, that made the bike what it is, which is, which is then the ver- first version of everything else that you see there is, uh, is what they called the safety bicycle. And the safety bicycle is a version of what we have now where it, it had pedals and it had a, a brake and it had shocks. And, um, and anyway, you know, it's a wonderful example of how sometimes the very first versions of something are a good mm-hmm. idea, but they're not quite there. And, um, and, you know, I bet that the very first inventors of the bicycle were sitting around thinking, why don't people like this? Why won't people use <laughs> right. this? 
right? And and the problem is because the idea wasn't fully there yet. And uh, and what you needed to do was like not spend all your time trying to convince people to use this thing, but rather try to understand why they're not using the thing. Mm, and then take and then take the concerns that they have and build them into your product. Um, I mean, the history of the bicycle is, is it's it's a wonderful example of yep. of how we get to um, a beautiful, perfect thing. The answer is it takes a very long time. Yeah. Well, and 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 I think there's all kinds of lessons wrapped in that. And I want to bring it back to the book because yeah. I think there's some commonalities. And I want you to share what you think here. When when I say, um, as I might call it, Napoleon's butter experiment, you've got Europe's uh-huh. Europe's potatoes and England's umbrella. There are some commonalities amongst all of those that I can also garner from what you just shared about the bike and and some some uniqueness about each of their story all at the same time. Can you can you share about that and I want to I want people to realize like this is like a teaser to how great what you bring out in the book about how we react to change and just looking at some of these examples so many years down the road, like how wild it is. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I, I, it was called the penny farthing. Uh, while you're just asking that question, I made I Googled it. So the no. penny farthing is that penny is that farthing. bicycle with a with a tiny wheel and the giant wheel. Um, so so you threw you threw a couple out there. Uh, I could do like little history lessons on all, but but um but 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 let's start me out with one. Which one? Which one did you? Uh, Go with the butter. Find the most curious. Yeah, share about Napoleon's butter because I feel like that's at least that's what I call it. But how would Napoleon. you how would you talk about that? Okay, so yeah, so Napoleon's butter. So um, you know, th- this to me is a story about how when when we focus on trying to stop change rather than to try to embrace change, um, we are led in directions that are increasingly ridiculous. Uh, so so the 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 origin. Um, it's, it's interesting. So this, if we go back into the 1800s in France, um, Napoleon is looking for, uh, not Napoleon Bonaparte, like a, a, one of the other Napoleons, uh, is looking for um, a, a uh, he, he ch- challenges the nation to come up with a butter-like substance that can travel with the troops. Because, you know, the problem is butter, butter's great. Uh, and, you know, people aren't back then just thinking about it as like, mm-hmm. this is a, this is a delicious spread on my, on my bread. This is, this is a um, portable protein. It's just very important for, right. um, for people to have access to something like this. And, uh, but it doesn't travel well and there's no refrigeration didn't hadn't, hadn't existed yet. So anyway, uh, um, makes a, puts out the call and a, uh, a like a French physician or something answers it and creates what uh, is called oleomargarine. And oleomargarine is basically a, it's like a kind of weird combination of beef tallow and a bunch of other stuff that's spreadable. And, uh, and it, it, it works, it achieves the goal. And then it makes its way over to America where eventually it just becomes known as margarine. Um, and margarine presents a great threat to the butter industry of the day mm-hmm. because butter was expensive and it was also very hard to store because, like I said, refrigeration didn't exist. Now, when you were talking about the late 1800s, we're talking about, you know, a pretty a pretty poor America and a very, uh, uh, you know, it's an agrarian culture and uh, or not late 1800s, but sort of mid, mid 1800s. And um, um, uh, it's a, it's an agrarian culture that's that's starting to transition into um, a, uh, a, a, you know, a, a kind of age of industrialization. Um, people don't have a lot to eat. And they can't afford much food and they can't afford butter. Like it's really hard for the average person to 
get enough protein in their day. Mostly they're eating like stale bread. So here comes oleomargarine and it is cheap and it is easily accessible and it will stay at home. It will not spoil. And people love this. Margarine or the butter industry hates it, tries to stop it, finds it to be a grave threat to their industry. And uh, they start to work with the government through, uh, you know, uh, uh, systems that we're still very familiar with today uh, called regulatory capture, where business uh, and government work together to basically um, um, stop competition. And uh, and they start to pass all these laws, these taxation laws against butter, uh, I mean, against margarine to make margarine more expensive and harder to harder to to uh, to, to gain access to. And they also uh, start to pass these laws uh, to the state laws that mandate that margarine be dyed unappealing colors. So now we have pink margarine and we have mm. black margarine, um, you know, things that are just supposed to be disgusting so that people won't buy the margarine yeah. and will instead buy the butter. Um, and the result of all this is that the Supreme Court eventually knocks it down uh, and they say that you cannot mandate that that margarine be dyed a certain color, but you can prohibit it from being dyed yellow. So then margarine starts to be sold as white with a yellow food packet in it, which turns out to be something that kids absolutely love. So now families are buying white margarine with yellow food uh, food coloring and they're stirring it in and they're having a blast and kids love it and they start to think of that as butter and for the next like 50 or 60 years sales of butter tanks and margarine soars mm. and um and the, you know the lesson here that that i think everybody should consider is when you see massive change coming you have two options. Number one is to try to go and attack the thing that's creating the change or to resist the change, to say, this doesn't work for me and I would like to rearrange the world so that it can work for me instead. But that is uh, not going to work. That is out of your control. All that's going to do is lead you towards ridiculous solutions that are increasingly distancing you from your ultimate goal of providing value to people. Mm. The other option is to be responsive. To say, what is it that's changing and why is it changing? Imagine if the butter industry had said, you know what? People can't afford our product. And one of the reasons is because people can't store our product for very long. Um, and therefore, they have to buy it in large quantities and then it's going to spoil. So what if instead we got involved in the very early uh, uh, iterations of refrigeration. It was happening at the same time. The butter industry could have been involved in that. They could have been leaders in figuring out how to bring refrigeration to the masses so that their product could stay longer. Mm. They didn't do that. Instead, they fought and they fought and they fought and they lost as a result. Yeah, it's such a great story. And, and even going into, I think you also talk about the refrigeration process and ice and how that kind of, I mean, there's so many similarities yeah. in all of these stories. I really want people to read your book. I want to talk about extrapolate the gain, but we don't have time to do that. Before we land the plane, though, we've got to have you, as 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 we do with all of our guests, we want to honor that, uh, honor you by having you give us your definition of a goat. And then mm -hmm. we'd like for you to share a goat before we land the plane here. Okay. Um, I love it. You, you, so, you know, I, I'm going to caveat this with something, um, which is that I I do really in my own life almost zero um, idolizing of people. Uh, you know, people ask me all the time, who 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 do you think is most interesting or, or you know, what, what's your favorite entrepreneur? Who would you like to interview the most? And um, I never have an answer to that question. And the reason is because um, because I oftentimes I find that the people who are most memorable to me are the ones that I had never heard of before. Mm. And, uh, 
uh, and and they're the people who are like either off everybody's radar or at least off of my radar. And that, that that's that's average people, average entrepreneurs. It's also celebrities, though. I'll tell you, funny enough, like I you know I, I profile a lot of celebrities in Entrepreneur Magazine, and um and most of them I don't care about pop culture, so most of them I've never heard of. Uh, I just I just profiled Norman Reedus, um, the lead in Walking Dead. I loved that guy. I had a wonderful conversation with him. I think so highly of him. I'd never heard of him. I'll just be honest. I never, I don't watch the show. I'd never heard of that guy before. Uh, uh, so, um, so it's like, I, I kind of have learned to go through the world thinking that the greatest things are going to come from the places that I least expect. And so I spend very little time thinking about how impressed I am with any one person. But, um, but all that said, if I think of, you know, what, what does greatest of all time mean to me, it means someone who, who, um, who, who, who came to represent a, big ideas is to me the greatest of all time um because i i you know we we don't last very long on this planet and um and and the things that we make don't last that long either but our ideas do our ideas can last a very very long time um individual thoughts and sentences that we have can last a long time and they they can they can they can shape us uh, forever um, right. I mean, you just think about like enlightenment thinkers and, and the things that they said. So, um, so when I think of, of greatest of all time, that's to me, my definition is, um, is who said something that shaped the way that we think. Mm. And because I think that matters pretty much more than anything else. Um, I love that. So now with that said, uh, who is the greatest of all time? You know, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know how to begin with that, but um, one of the guys that you think of when you think of who helped shape one of those ideas. Yeah. Um, I, I am going to, I'm going to tell you instead of, I, I mean, look, I could be like Descartes or something, but instead I'm going to tell you very briefly the story of uh, Joshua Norton, you've probably never heard of. Did you know that America had an emperor? His name was Joshua Norton, emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. That was his title. Thing is, he gave it to himself. Let's, he get, lived him on the the, show. Let's get him on the show. He gave it to himself. Yeah, yeah see, if, see if you can find him. He died, in the, he died in the 1880s, but if you can get him on the show, <laughs> I will definitely listen. Get his great um, son. So, um, so, so Joshua Norton, um, he was a he was a he was a character in San Francisco in the mid 1800s. Uh, South African moved to San Francisco, uh, became a successful businessman. Bet all of his money on uh, rice at a time in which uh, the price of rice had skyrocketed because there was a rice shortage. But people didn't know that actually there was a ton of rice that was on the way on ships, and so then uh, rice showed up and the price of rice plummeted. And Joshua Norton lost all his money and he disappeared. And when he came back, this isn't in the book, by the way. This is just like a random thing that I love. Um, when he came back, right. uh, when he when he reappeared on the scene, um, he uh, he he walked into uh, a newspaper in San Francisco because this is back at the time when there were like tons of newspapers in every city, and he handed them a declaration declaring himself emperor of the United States, Absolutely. and uh, and and they ran it because why not? Yeah. Um, and um, and then. 
and then he uh, he just sort of tried to preside over San Francisco as if he was the emperor. He walked around in a like, military <laughs> uniform. Uh, yes. He he eventually started issuing bonds, uh, and uh, uh, and people started treating him like the emperor. He, they would have him, um, they would have him at like all four, you know, every every formal ceremony of the city. Uh, he 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 uh, he would be at, and um, he would start to issue these declarations that would go in newspapers, declaring things like it is now illegal to refer to San Francisco as Frisco, and uh, <laughs> uh, and just you know, there was just these wonderful random things. And then when the transcontinental railroad was built in uh in the mid 1800s and people from the um people from the uh like east coast came out to san francisco for the first time and they're like what's here what we finally were able to see the west coast of the united states of america what is here and they would say well meet our emperor and so then the emperor <laughs> norton started being written about in newspapers around the country uh and um anyway the reason that i tell you about this is because the thing that has always stuck with me about emperor norton was that he was he was he was probably a crazy man, right? I mean, he probably he lost all of his money and he probably lost his mind and he declared himself emperor. And um people loved it and they they treated him sort of like the emperor. And um and I learned about this years ago and it always stuck with me because you know the truth of it is that confidence and belief matter in a way almost more than anything else. Mm. Um you, you know, you really can strangely bend the world to the way that you see it so long as i think that one you have an understanding of what people need and want and that you're not just asking people to give something to you but you're giving back too because when you look at the story of emperor norton what you really see is a a guy who got to be emperor because everyone liked that he was emperor because he added some kind of value to San Francisco, this kind of crazy frontierish town that really loved being weird. And they had this weird Still character today. that could be. Yeah. And, and, um and I see versions of that all the time now where Absolutely. the reason why, the reason why people have the status that they have is not just because they demand it, not just just because they're confident in it, but because they are aware that in some way they're fulfilling something for other people too. Mm. Strange as it may be, and maybe unpredictable as it may be, as long as you understand what your role is to other people, people will give you a lot of what you want. Mm. And I love that story of Emperor Norton, and I don't know that he has shaped really anybody's understanding of the world um, today, except for maybe mine, because I discovered him when I was in my 20s, and I've been fascinated with him ever since. But um, but to me, when I think of uh, just sort of character who's greatest of all time, I think of that guy. Well, Gosh. for John, it's 90s hip-hop. I mean, that's what just shaped the, his, there's no better his entire life, genre and given him so much. <laughs> yes. And now you get to give it to the world. <laughs> I, I would have not, if you would have asked me what we talked about today, I would have not said Emperor Norton and um, and his reign in San Francisco, but uh, an incredible story nonetheless that I think I think allows people to see their world in a different way, right? The first thing you have to believe it's possible. The second thing yeah. is you got to believe it's possible for you. And then, That's what, right. and then the third thing I think that I love that you said the most is what value do you bring to other people? How do you add value to them? Without that, that you have nothing. I love it. Go buy Build for Tomorrow. Uh, reach out to me, the first person to reach out. I will actually send you uh, send you a book. Uh, I'm also going to send you this book, uh, as we talked about <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, Jason, it's such a treat to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing yeah. your story and many other stories like Emperor Norton. We'd, we'd love to we'd love to spend some more time with you, and we know that uh, that you've got a busy schedule. But uh, for from middle school dances 
yeah. where, where he started to The Walking Dead, <laughs> to Entrepreneur Magazine, and now in his latest book, John, say it one more time for our Build audience. Build for Tomorrow. Build for Tomorrow. Jason, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to be with us on the GOAT Consulting Podcast. For John Byers and Jason Pfeiffer and my friend Tyler, who's in the Sprinter, I'm Colby Jubenville, and this is the GOAT Consulting Podcast. Um. Oh.